Good morning, my name is Scott Reevely. Would you please join me as we pray? Our great God and Father, we come humbly before you and your word this morning. Would you enable us to see you for who you are? Would you help us to see ourselves for who we are? And Father, would you remind us of the difference between what we receive and what we deserve? Would you remind us of the difference between our own poverty and your riches, between the goodness that you grant to us and what it is that we have a right to on our own. And so, Father, would you just keep us humble and help us, help us to trust you completely. And we'll, we just need your help for that. And so I thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, we have a psalm written for a crisis. You may notice, if you have a paper Bible especially, that there is a little inscription above Psalm 73 that says, uh, Book 3. The psalms are divided into several um, sets. Psalm 73 kicks off this third set, or th book three. And one of the unique distinctions about this third book of the Psalms is that it is really about crises. Some of the crises are personal, some of the crises are national. And here, this Psalm, Psalm 73, you might think of as the leadoff hitter in this third book book. And I'm certain that this third book, or this leadoff hitter in the third book, is going to connect with how you have been feeling. It's perhaps the most personal in the whole book, and it deals with a common challenge that all of us face in building a life of faith. Namely, how do you know it's worthwhile to follow Christ? How do you know it's worthwhile to be a Christian? You see, just because you affirm it doesn't mean you know it. Just because you know it doesn't mean you embrace it. Maybe you ask the question another way. How does something go from your head to your heart? What makes the difference between something you just know and something you really believe? Well, Psalm 73 deals with that process of going from head to heart, from knowledge to belief. So let's look at it. It says it's a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Well, if you're a person of faith, you probably approach your faith like Asaph does. You know what is true. You know what it is you believe. He says, 
Truly, God is good to Israel. That is his statement of fact. That's the right answer. He affirms the correctness of his doctrine. Surely, God is good to Israel. And that works great in church. It works great in the classroom. It works great until reality hits. You can affirm, surely this must be true, except when you look around and it doesn't look like it's true. See, there's no amount of intellectual convincing that can solve a problem that is not intellectual. Asaph knows the truth, but the truth doesn't feel right. That is the problem of Psalm 73. And the truth is that God is good. That God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Well, and if that's the truth, what's the problem? I mean, that's pretty good. What's the problem? Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. Are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. See, here's the problem. He knows God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And yet, it looks like God is good to the wicked like the wicked are prospering. And so, it isn't working for him. You see, Psalm 73 is a remarkable psalm of personal disappointment. Asaph looks around and questions whether or not it is worth following God. Because the wicked are successful. They're wealthy. They're healthy. They don't have a care in the world. And then, to top it off, they act as if God doesn't even care and he doesn't even see. So think about this. I mean, maybe you're one that's been faithful about social distancing and wearing your face covering. And yet you look around and other people are having a lot more fun than you and they couldn't care less. They're hugging each other. They're... There's no distance. There's no mask. And yet, from all appearances, they're still healthy. Maybe things are really tight for you financially. 
You're doing everything you can to manage your money. You're tithing. Yet you know people who haven't even given one thought to God or tithing or anything else. And they live life full and easy and they have plenty. And life's not fair. I imagine there's some of you who want to be married and you're not. And you look at people, particularly on the celebrity pages of uh, internet, and they hop in and out of bed with one another. And they hop in and out of marriage. And it doesn't seem to matter. And there's only one conclusion, and that is that life is not fair. Imagine some of you want children. And God's withheld that blessing from you. And you think of all of the babies born to families where you know the children really won't have a fighting chance. And it's a tragedy. And you look and you say, life is not fair. This is not working for me. You see, when the wicked prosper, it calls into question the goodness of God and the value of serving Him. What benefit is it to know God if people who don't care at all about Him have it just as good or better than I do? I mean, this is where social media is a killer, isn't it? Because everyone posts the best parts of their life and it stacks up against the worst parts of, the, of your life that you're not about to put on social media and you wonder, how in the world is this working? Because other people have it all together and they don't care about God and I care very deeply and it isn't working for me. Well, as normally happens, it gets worse before it gets better. Look at verses 13 through 15. He says, Truly in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I'll speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. All I can say there is, wow. Have you ever felt that way? In vain, I have kept my hands pure. Or let me say it every way. It has been a waste of time for me to love Christ. How do you know it's not a waste of time? I mean, after all, shouldn't God make it worth my while to follow him? Shouldn't there be some kind of like crumbs out there anyway that I would know that I'm doing the right thing? So think about it, because this is the nub of the problem. What is it that you expect from God? Do you expect he will give um, good things to you? Do you expect that he's going to make your life a little easier? What does it look like for him to make it worth your while to follow him? Or if I had asked the question another way, what is the scorecard that you use to decide 
if it's worthwhile to follow Christ? Are you able, by your scorecard, to even tell if God likes you? So if you're keeping a scorecard, if you're tallying up wins and losses to determine that if God is holding up his end of the bargain, then that is the problem. That was a problem for Asaph. I think that's a problem for us. When I talk about God holding up his end of the bargain, you realize, don't you, that when I say that, I'm not believing the gospel any longer. In fact, I'm believing the anti-gospel. I'm believing the news that God and I have struck some sort of bargain and he's not holding up his end. I'm confessing with my heart that favor with God is earned. And I am believing contrary to grace that people get only what they deserve. It's even more of a problem when this deal that I want to strike with God doesn't center around God himself or his character or his promises. It centers around a secondary issue. It centers around his gifts rather than the giver. And I think about the, the way I want to bargain with this. God, you were supposed to keep me healthy. After all, I even ate kale last week. God, you were supposed to keep my children in the faith. God, you were supposed to fill in the blank. We had a deal. And you see, that heart feeling, that angst, that pressure reflects that I am missing the gospel. It reflects that I love the gift more than the giver. And I want to say, I can guarantee a crisis of faith when the blessings of God become more important or more central to your heart than the person of God. See, that's what the road to crisis feels like. In fact, if you look there, what he says is, surely I have been good for no purpose. It just doesn't pay. I mean, this is just heart-wrenching for me. Because <laughs> I don't want to feel that way, but I have. And see if you realize that it doesn't matter if you're good. I mean, it just is disheartening. And the writer of this psalm asks the hard questions. And he struggles to make what he knows fit with what he believes. To make his reality fit with the, uh, his doctrine. But I want you to know that he doesn't stay in the struggle, and you don't have to stay in the struggle either. 
He says if he talked like he really wanted to talk, if he really was completely honest with his feelings, he would have betrayed God's other children. He knows he's out of bounds. He knows that this way of thinking is just really bothering him. And it's completely harmful to his heart. And I just want to say, have you ever been there? If you haven't been there, you will be there. Because this is hard. And there is a struggle to match. God is good to Israel. God is good to His people. When you look around and it doesn't seem to make any difference. But like I said, He doesn't stay there. Look at what He does. In verse 16, He begins to turn this around. And this is what you need to see. Verse 16, When I thought, how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you, slept, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, you rouse yourself. You despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Now there is a, there is a hint here of what is going on. Three times in this psalm, he uses the word surely or truly. And it, it's actually not translated one of the times in ESV. In, in verse 1, he says, truly, God is good to Israel. Israel. And then again in verse 18, he says, truly, you set them on slippery places. And he says it too in verse 13. Truly. But, but you see what happens is he's saying what he knows to be true whether he feels like it or not. And so how does he figure this out? See, again in verse 16, he says, I tried to think about this. I tried to understand this. And it's, I just got tireder and tireder of the struggle. One of the things that we're tempted to do, in fact, some, sometimes you even get this advice, and that is simply, why don't you go off by yourself? Take some time. Take a break and think about it. And you go into seclusion and you study your situation and nothing gets better. There are a lot of people who are quick with explanations. They intellectualize and objectify all of these problems. And they just simply don't help. They're like Job's friends. And I just want to suggest to you that, that here in Psalm 73, anyway, trying to just withdraw, 
trying to avoid more problems doesn't solve the problem. Look what does solve the problem in verse 17. In verse 17, he says, until I went to the sanctuary, until he goes to worship with God's people. And when he goes to worship with God's people, then things begin to fall into place. Then he gains the perspective that he had lost. Then he gets a view of reality that he had been missing when he was by himself or when he was in the midst of his struggle. It's when he worships in the sanctuary with God's people. I mean, really, think about it. Think about the crisis we're in right now. One of the reasons we felt it so deeply has been our inability together as a people of God in corporate worship of Yahweh. We just haven't been able to do that. And it's kept us in the middle of this problem in some respect. It has short-circuited the perspective that we need on reality. See, we look at it and we say, God, it's out of control. God, the wicked are doing fine and I'm struggling. But here what he says is the gathering in the sanctuary to worship God with his people, that is what has given him perspective. Because the rehearsal the rehearsal of the truth of God's word and the reminders from the people of God that, uh, that yes, God is good to Israel. That's what shortens the gap between your head and your heart. That's what gives you the grace to bring together your doctrine and your faith. I think it's interesting that Asaph was a worship leader. He was one designated uh, by David and his, uh, his uh, children led worship for, for years as well. And it is this worship leader who realized, you know what, on my own, I'm not going to get this. I need God's people to help me. I need to be engaged worshiping God so that I'm reminded of what is really true. It is the discipline of worship that gave him perspective. See, I think we treat this far too casually. I think we think of worship as something that uh, we'll do if we can't go camping. We'll do it if we don't have something better to do on the weekend. When in fact, the worship of God is designed to bring you face to face with God and remind you of how things really are, not just how they look to you. It is an act of faith to commune with God and to be present with his people. And a worship service, a worship gathering is meant to remind us of who God really is and why we say it's good to belong to him. And see, what it does, when he goes to the sanctuary to worship with God's people, what does he find? He finds that, yes, in fact, 
God is going to balance the scales. Yes, in fact, God is going to judge the wicked. They're not getting away with it. It's not as good for them as it looks. Because his judgment is certain. He's given them the slippery uh, ground to stand on. And it's not, their success is not going to last. Justice will prevail even when fairness won't. The prospering of the wicked is only a mirage. So don't be fooled. Inside their wickedness are the seeds of their own demise. Inside their sin is the very thing that will bring that sin crumbling to the ground. So I think the judgment he has here probably is a temporal perspective. He knows it's not going to even last the rest of their life. But if it does, it certainly won't be eternal. Certainly there will be a balancing. Certainly there will be a making right of all of these wrongs one day. And so while sin may promise success, Ultimately, the sinner will slip. Ultimately, God will judge. Ultimately, I can be confident. Yes, in fact, choosing Christ is choosing the best path. Now, that's one thing to say. It's one thing for me just simply to say, yes, choosing Christ is choosing the right thing. Following God is the right way. Yes, But you see, when you have been in anguish of soul, when you have been this bitterly provoked, as he is in Psalm 73, he recognizes it isn't just, again, talking a good game. He must repent. And look at the language of repentance here. It says that he was embittered. He was pricked in the heart. Or literally, he was pricked in the kidneys. He was physically sick. He was, this is his own self-description. I was brutish, ignorant, like a beast before you. When you come to recognize yourself in those terms before God, that is truly admitting the error of your ways. That is what it means to repent and to get a level of clarity that isn't just intellectual clarity, but it's heart clarity. Because the problem isn't intellectual. The problem is a heart problem. And so when he gets that deep heart level of clarity, he realizes, I haven't been seeing the world like it really is. It's been a mirage. And so then he says, this is how it really is. He turns the corner again in verse 23, and the rest of this is unbelievably beautiful. He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. 
I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. This positive conclusion displays the sweetness and the satisfaction of what it means to have God for your God. Nothing can compare. There is no amount of health or fatness or wealth or fame or comfort that can take the place of having God be your I mean, this is so, so sweet. He says, God holds me by my right hand. I mean, some of you have had the privilege of walking your children across the road or walking and just along a beach or something and have them just slip their hand into yours. No words were spoken. There's just a a sweetness and a comfort and a love expressed there by holding you by the hand. That's what he says. That's what he says is yours. So again, what is that? That's not an intellectual thing, is it? That's down at the heart level. There is a comfort and a guidance and a confidence that comes from God being your God. And not only that, there's an eternal comfort. He will receive you into glory. And what would you trade that for? The blessings of God are not that. This is is God himself. It's not the things that he gives you. This is better than that. This tender sweetness is the same sweetness that God shows us in the person of his son. In fact, as I just mentioned the picture of holding your child or your grandchild by the hand, I mean, God says to the one who receives Christ, who believes in his name, God gives the right to become the children of God. He gives you the privilege of being the one who holds his hand by virtue of trusting in Christ. And I just want to say, when we talk about faith and we talk about believing in Christ, we're talking about embracing Jesus as your own. We're not talking about affirming something to be true. We're not saying you need to assent to the fact that Jesus was a real historical person who died on a real cross and rose from a real grave. That is true. But faith is not affirming that. Faith is embracing the fact that in spite of however circumstances may be, whatever disappointments you come to in life, that you want Christ and that you embrace him. And it goes from your head to your heart. It goes from this intellectual understanding of historical facts to the real honest-to-goodness belief that he is yours. And then it goes on to say, 
Whom have I in heaven but you? There's none on earth I desire besides you. There is a delight here in God that is ours through his son Jesus. That words can't express. He goes on to say, my flesh and my heart fail. See, one of the things we expect, I mean, that's the whole thing that this psalm has been about when my expectations aren't met. And we expect that, yes, as soon as I trust Christ, it's going to get better. But it doesn't. He says, my flesh and my heart fail. They still fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is what I have. Whether my heart fails or not, whether I struggle with this or not, whether I get sometimes preoccupied with his gifts instead of with him or not, he still is my prize. And see, this is the conclusion. It is good to be near God. This is right where we started, isn't it? We started with the affirmation, surely God is good to Israel. But I have all these problems. And then he, no, he, he goes over again. He meets with God's people and they remind him in the worship of God through his word and through um, song and through prayer, through being in the company of other believers, reminds him of what he has in the person of God. And so now he doesn't just affirm it intellectually. Now deep down he says, it is good. And this goodness of God does make him happy. He says, God is my refuge. It doesn't matter if other people think they don't need a refuge. I have one. And I have a good one. And I'm going to tell of all of his works. See, once the head and the heart are together... Once they're connected, that I know the doctrine, surely God's good to Israel, and I also know the practice, that it is good to be near God. Then I don't have a problem talking about him. I don't have a problem any longer because my head and my heart are connected saying what good things God has done for me. And so this process of Psalm 73, of the struggle to believe when I just don't see it in the outside world, and then moving it from the head to the heart, this process is a critical one that I think all of us will have to go through, which means it gets from the head to the heart. It becomes faith rather than just assent or agreement through struggle. It becomes faith when I affirm something to be true and then through experience, I can embrace it. One of the ways that I get over being preoccupied with the gifts that God gives is to have them taken away. And when they're taken away and all I have left is God and I can say, 
Whom have I in heaven but you? There's none on earth that I desire beside you. When my flesh and my heart fail, you are my strength and the, my portion forever. When I get there, I'm done comparing myself to other people. When I get there, I can thank God for the struggle. When the incongruity of my circumstances and the unfairness of my comparisons with other people hit me hard, God uses that to move me from this simple ascent to this strong, life-giving, heartfelt belief. The very things that threaten to push me over the edge are the very thing that helped me realize that I have the very thing that makes my heart happy. There is nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, that I would trade for it. There's nothing that I would trade for God to be my refuge, to be my portion forever. You see, when you've gotten all the way there, You've gotten all the way. And it is good, 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 good to be near God. Don't trade it for anything. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, our flesh and our heart may fail. But you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. God, would you... Be good to us. We affirm that. But Father, would you help us feel it? We know it. Would you make it true in the way that we live our lives? In the way we start our days, on our knees, in your word. In the way that we face trouble. In the, face, in the, in the way that we give up comparing ourselves to other people. God, would you help us affirm both with our head and our heart, that it is good to be yours. Amen.